And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. What's up, hustlers? Welcome back. This is Andrew Morgan's founder of Marknology, here as today's host of Startup Hustle, covering all things e-commerce, startups, uh, Amazon, you name it. Today, we're going to be talking about evaluating your supply chain, something that's super, super important. Um, the pandemic just made it even that much more important as everything got harder uh, with longer lead times. And, and it becomes, it was important then, it's even more important now. Um, but before we jump into that, I want to give a shout out to today's sponsor. Today's episode of Startup Hustle is powered by Fullscale.io. Hiring software developers is difficult. Fullscale can help you build a software team quickly and affordably and has a platform to help you manage that team. Visit Fullscale.io to learn more. Uh, today's founder is um, based in Austin, um, and we're going to be talking about supply chain. We, uh, Marknology is actually a partner with Gimba. Um, you know, when it comes to sourcing supply chain, it is not an easy task. You know, people talk about getting on Alibaba and ordering your products. It doesn't go like that. It's not the real world. Um, so we're going to be getting into just kind of like, you know, maybe you have a supply chain already in place, or maybe you're thinking about getting one going. What are the things to really think about? Um, is your supply chain great? Should you be thinking about, um, alternate options, you know, uh, all of that stuff. So without further ado, Zach, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, super excited to have you. Um, I think this is a very relevant topic, um, not just to, um, you know, Amazon sellers, but to e-commerce and brands everywhere. Even um, I own a real estate company, um, property management, Airbnbs, and a, so many of those projects have been affected by supply chain as well. You know, it's affecting every, um, every industry at some level. Um, you know, talk to me, but before we jump in, I guess, just to like our topic and like, how do you evaluate a supply chain? I like to get to know the guests and, and really understand like, you know, how you got to this point and, um, you know, a little bit more about you. So tell me about like, um, you know, college early days, like, did you know you were going to be an entrepreneur? Did you go to school for business? Like, where do you really yeah. get started? Sure. Yeah. I, I went to university of Texas. So I've been in Austin for quite some time. Uh, finance major so definitely did not go down the route of knowing that I was going to own my own business or start my own business when I got it you know I went I did consulting right out of school um in Chicago for KPMG so was that one of the you know okay. were firms that uh doing credit risk consulting and uh you know learned a lot there um a lot of learned, you know, learned that you hated it <laughs> I didn't hate it I think it was just okay. It just wasn't for me, um, but it was a it was a good experience to learn how to organize chaos. I think like you're kind of thrown into some situations where, you know, you're talking with top level execs, and I went to you know one of the largest mortgage originators in in the country, and then worked at Amex, you know, on on gigs, uh, you know, at those two places. So, works some. Can you talk to me? What's what's Amex gigs? What does that mean? Amex uh, American Express. Like I went okay. on, I went like different stuff. I call gigs, like jobs, whatever. I was okay. shipped out around the country um, to work for 
to work at Amex. Uh, okay. like I worked at MasterCard. Just, yeah, just, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I worked in in networking and security with my degree. So that was like oh, cool. definitely not on the fi finance side. But what does that mean? Um, can we dig into that a little bit? What would you do for Amex? Yeah, so meet with clients. We, what we did, well, they were the client. We would actually meet with their entire credit risk operation and evaluate. We evaluated their rewards program and try to make sure okay. that everything was you know, compliance and, you know, followed all the regulations and rules uh, and assigned value to the points, you know, internally and how they would manage what they would have to hold in their, you know, securities and, and stuff okay. to maintain that point system. Um, so it was pretty cool. Um, and then after, after doing that, I got more into the startup world and uh, worked for a company uh, called Instacart. I was um, one of the first I think 30 people there, um, you know, when I was there, like they were just in the, when I went there, they were just finalizing their series B. So I was there during series A and, um, you know, ran the Texas markets from, you know, launch all the way to doing over a million dollars a week in gross merchandise value or GMB or to a partnering with uh, whole foods and Costco and HEB locally and set up, you know, profitability models for them and helped, you know, create some skill, uh, on the profitability side for different so, Can I get nosy? Can I get nosy? I just like, you know, I want to understand this because this is really like eye opening to me. And I think to our listeners too, like, so you're in finance, you're working with risk analysis, uh, risk assessment and like evaluating programs. You're like, okay, I want to get into the startup. You're working with Instacart. I know of Instacart. I don't know if everybody else does, but, yeah. um, as a busy person, I'm like, get my groceries for sure. Yeah. Um, but like, so you're building out Texas like, were you more in like a sales role or were you like, you know, helping the sales guys build pitch decks or like, you know, and running that yeah. kind of stuff? Like, what does that mean exactly? No, I was, uh, I was like a, a, a city call it like a city or general manager of a city. Um, okay. so basically what, what it started out was like, you go into a city, if you're going to launch it and you help basically go in, like it was kind of what they call like ninja shopping, which is you would go into a store. This is like, let me first start it. You would scan every single barcode that they had for like the top 10,000 SKUs that they had in any store. Oh my God. Pricing. And then, well, we hired people to do that, but like, that's what okay. we would do. That is an I would create the catalog. And then you basically are, were in charge of making sure that you had, you know, your, your, uh, your shoppers scheduled and ready to go based on supply and demand. So like your peak times usually are like the first three hours in the morning and then in the afternoons. And then as you get like later on, like. Sundays and Mondays and Tuesdays were generally your busiest days because it's like when everyone is refilling their groceries and refrigerators for that. And as the week goes on, it got like kind of slower and slower and slower. Then it picked back up like Saturday. Then your peak was Sunday and Monday. So you'd have to like onboard hundreds of shoppers every single week. Uh, you had to create, that was more of like the creating the deck and like doing all that kind of stuff. And then you'd have to train them, get them to use the app, onboard them into the system get them into the stores, train them how to, you know, actually go and shop the store. Um, what was that? Slow down just a second. Okay. So let's just say, so your, your background is like, you know, I'm trying to understand like the background and how that jumps into a job like that. Cause it sounds like really intense. Like, um, yeah. so the stores were already on board, let's say. So, so grocery store, did you need the grocery stores to be on board? Like technically? You know, that, so that's the part that's interesting. So like when I started, no grocery store was like on board. Like they weren't, con they weren't contractually on board. We would just kind of like Uber style, just like go in there and make them on board. And then when, as it evolved, like my role became like fostering the partnerships with the local stores and getting them to 
you know, like we had a business development team that was more headquartered that would like sign the agreement. And then once the agreement was in place, the operations team would then go like make everything work. So they would get the catalogs sent to our catalog operations people every single day and they would upload and re-update the catalog for, you know, the store every single day. And then they kind of centralized all the management of like, you know, the, the logistics and everything uh, in San Francisco. And I helped build uh, you know, a product that would understand how to forecast supply and demand across all the regions that they operated in and do all that stuff. Cause that's like, it's like the progression of how the product and how the company evolved. So it became like a well-oiled product and machine and yeah, yeah, yeah. engineering problem as opposed to an ops problem. But when I started, it was made way more of like, all right, like we're growing like boots crazy. on the ground. Yeah, we're like, growing like crazy. Your your job is to make sure that you can facilitate as many orders as you possibly can as we grow like this. So it was wild, absolutely wild. I think about Postmates and like Uber Eats, and you know they're all rolling up together now. Yeah. Um, but I think about like you know during the pandemic, uh, there were so many restaurants let's say that just had horrible websites, like, you know, horrible delivery takeout, they wouldn't have existed. They didn't have websites, you know, if it had taken them a couple months to get a website that's functioning that like, you know, is it's now online. Now they have to be able to run Google ads or get themselves like ranked. Um, so many more would have gone under, you know, but honestly, like the Postmates and Uber Eats of the world, et cetera, essentially took those antiquated, like small businesses and made them relevant to continue to like, now you, you have a delivery uh, service that you didn't right. have and you know um now you see like some of the, at least where i'm at in kansas city you have hy and price chopper and they have like you know you can shop online and yep. but they're like smaller chains you know so you can sh shop online or show up and they'll put it in your cart yep. um but like i feel like the instacarts of the world lead that uh like you know that now some websites are starting to get their own website or, or to do right. it like that but definitely pioneering it early you guys were literally hiring a hundred plus like that's the, that was the demand in the cities, like, you know, that you were launching in was like, you had yeah, that many signups on the app. Yep. And you, you know, I guess by the end of it, we were getting, you know, like I said, a million bucks a week in, in value coming out of that, out of the Texas markets, you know, you're, so you're running, uh, San Antonio, Dallas, Austin, Houston, all at the same time from one place. Right. So it's wow. like, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you have to hire people in those individual places, get them to help uh, with the onboarding of the thing of those shoppers. And again, you were competing back then against, you know, OG Uber Postmates, where it was like, how many Craigslist ads can you take out at one time? And how can you like position yourself to be more, you know, profitable for your bottom line to the average shopper or the average driver, right? So, like, it was a, it was just, it was wild, man. Pick, like, like pick us over them, like, right? You know, like, work, work like with come us. Work, come work, uh, you know, on Instacart's gig economy uh, because we'll pay you, you know, X dollars. And then the next day you see Uber's like, yeah, we'll pay you one dollar more. And then we go back and like, oh, we're going to pay you one. What you know? What I mean, it's just like a, it was a, it was a rat race to try and get as many people on as possible because you know they. They would try and make money wherever they can. So they would, you know, turn on Uber and go, you know, drive for them. And then they'd turn on Instacart and go, you know, work for us. And it was, uh, so you didn't have people who were working. There were some people who would work like, you know, consistent schedules, but then you had, you had the people that would fill in the gaps on the schedule to make sure that you could facilitate the demand at any given time. Sounds like a nightmare. Um, it was a fun. Bit. It was fun. Yeah. It, it, obviously, if you do that for a long enough time, then uh, <laughs> you get a little burnt out, but yeah, from there, uh, after that, you know, I went to another same day delivery startup in Austin and ran strategy. And it was really there that I think I, I kind of was just like, you know, what, I just got to 
jump to do this on my own, do my own thing. And what I saw in the delivery space is that, you know, there wasn't really a, uh, it felt like there wasn't like a lot of brand loyalty, right? Like you're going to try, yeah. you're going to try and get, um, the cheapest amount. And I think that still rings true today. Like, I don't, if I'm trying to get like, if I sit on Uber or Lyft at the same time, like whatever one's going to get me there the fastest for the cheapest, like I'm going to go with that. Like there's no loyalty to that. Like, I just Why think, would there be loyalty? Like, right. you know, like uh, it's not like I'm going into the grocery store and like they're nice to me every time. And that's why I'm going there because I'm right. just like, I like it. It's clean and people are polite and they're playing the music I want here and it's a vibe. No, you're just like on a screen. You right. Know? Right. So, you know, I, I, the same thing I think rings true in commercial delivery, like people choose their UPS or FedEx, I think based on rates, right? Or same day delivery, same, like same notion, like they, they just want whatever I can get for the cheapest rate. And so for me, like the value of where I wanted to, you know, kind of look was higher up on the supply chain, which was more on the, you know, manufacturing side, the sourcing side. And I have two co-founders and, you know, both of them are, you know, one of them, came from, he created his own pet products company and the other one, uh, you know, worked at, or was a CEO of a, of a promotional products company. So they had a lot more hands-on like supply chain product products. Right. And I was kind of like the, the business ninja guy. And so we kind of met, started meeting like once every four weeks or once a month and it turned into once every two weeks. And it was like once a week and it was just like, all right, like we got to go for this. And you know, I, it's funny, like I, I remember I, I jumped ship like right before I got married. And uh, we got our first like big order walls on my honeymoon in Bali. And I was like up at 1, 1 a.m. And I was like, I really shouldn't be doing this because it's my honeymoon. But like, I really should be doing this because, you know, why not? And got that first order. And I would like, and that was back when I was like, how do I even work QuickBooks? Like, I, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. So I don't, yeah, know, yeah, yeah. I don't even know how to facilitate the order, but I'm going to take it in and we'll figure it out. But like, you have those kind of like moments where you're like, yeah, I, like I'm onto something. Like you're, you're getting orders, you're getting customers, like gets exciting and you know you're super exciting like do i care about quickbooks i'll go hire someone for that like you know it gets to like those those moments of like okay like this is this is fun this is cool um and then yeah from there you know we started raising money from uh investors and you know now here and here today uh we have you know eight different regions that operate out of from a manufacturing standpoint we've scaled the company beyond just manufacturing. We do product development and product uh, research and all that good stuff. And we facilitate it all through a platform and through a network of people. So we, you know, if you go through the development cycle with us, like we match whatever experts and expertise we can from a design and engineering perspective to your product. So if you're creating shoes, for example, we have Under Armour designers who worked on Under Armour shoes that we can match you up with to help you get through the process of creating, you know, your CAD files, your tech packs, all the things you need to go talk to the factory. And then once that's done, you put that in front of our teams overseas and get competitive bids from eight different regions where it's applicable from all the factories within our network, which now spans, you know, over 2000 factories that we've, you know, personally vetted to get on our platform because we're going for quality over quantity. Like we're the, we're kind of like the anti Alibaba. We're not looking for, we're not looking for a bunch of like, you know, people who pretend to be factories or fly by night. Right. Right. Sourcing agents or any of that stuff. Like we're looking for like to get you as close to the factory as we possibly can. So we're getting you in touch with like their factory managers, people are actually doing the production, sending people to the factory to make sure that production is going well. And then, you know, working with the customers to try and, you know, get the production schedules good and, and into their warehouse as fast as possible with the highest quality as possible. 
I think that's, it's, you know, it's a testament to, and this is a lot of how I built my company was like what I didn't want to be because of other things I had done. And it was like, you know, I wanted to set something different. Um, and I think, you, you know, when your only value add is that you're the cheapest, it sucks. Yeah. Like if that's the only thing you're going for, it's just like, you know, cause you're, everything is like scarcity shrinking. Margins are shrinking. Everything's shrinking. It's just like scarcity, scarcity, scarcity mm-hmm. versus when you build brand, when you build, like when you go up market and you're trying to just like focus on quality, it can be harder. You have to be good at all the other things. Right. But, um, it's more, it's a completely different mindset, I guess, around the growth of it and what you're trying to do and how you feel about it. It's like, well, we can't compete there because we can't be at this price or we can't be at this price, you know? Um, and I think that, you know, that's why, that's why I've partnered with you um, and, and sought you guys out was because, you know, I'm at that space 11 years into what we do. I think Marknology turned nine this year um, where we're working with those types of clients, those types of brands that like, um, aren't just looking for the cheapest. They want quality yeah. and they want to know that they're working with good partners. And it's, you know, you pick the problems that you want. So to speak, right. I heard that said, it's like, you get to pick the problems you want. Um, and supply chain is like, I'm someone that never wanted to go to China to source product. Uh, personally, I just like nothing against it. I just didn't, I just don't want to be in China. We're running through markets, picking product. And then like, you know, going to the factories, that's not something that ever, um, excited me. Uh, but yet I built brands with everyone that does that, you know? So mm-hmm. I definitely experienced that. Um, talk to me just like, and then I want to get into kind of like really our topic, which is like, how do you evaluate what you do have? And I know there's a bunch of different models out there, but, um, you talked about 2000, um, you know, in e-commerce in the Amazon space, Latin America is a big topic. Everyone's talking about it, you know, for sourcing products or being a pivot away from China as everything gets harder and, and the shipping containers get more costly and those kinds of things. Um, is that something that you guys are paying attention to? Is it something you guys have focused on for a while? Like, you know, what, where's Latin America fit in your, in your plans? Yeah, we, we opened up uh, Latin America a couple of years ago once the pandemic hit and once the, you know, supply chain issues started with all the bottlenecks and all the, you know, cost increased for containers. Um, so we have, you know, personnel in Mexico, Colombia, um, and Brazil. Uh, and we're looking into other places like Puerto Rico and, and, and Panama and places like that as well. Um, cool. where, you know, there's potential for, uh, specific products. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, this is what we do every day, you know, right now, for example, like container prices are at like two year lows. Right. So if you have yeah. like cost of goods sold for you is probably never, and the dollar is strongest it's been in a long time. So like cost of goods sold is probably top of mind for a lot of people. Like the things that people should be thinking about is like, how do you take advantage of that right now? Like, are you, are you talking to your factory and renegotiating rates because the dollar is stronger probably than you originally negotiated a year ago or two years ago or five years ago, whatever it is. Right. Um, do you have enough supply to last you through Chinese new year? Well, mm-hmm. let's order now because your, your factory is going to get, bombarded with orders coming up to, you know, Christmas and, and, uh, and Thanksgiving, but, you know, take advantage of those, those low costs. Like, even if you don't, even if you have maybe inventory for 90 days, like what if prices spike again for, <laughs> for containers and they double again overnight, like you don't know what's going to happen. So I, I always say be opportunistic and try and, you know, mitigate as much risk as you can. And right now the supply chain, uh, costs are the least they've been in a long time. Um, so take advantage of that. Totally, totally. Um, I know for a fact, like my, you know, my friends are trying to to curate kind of like those manufacturing conferences and things like that in Mexico Mm -hmm. City, where they're bringing all the manufacturers together. I think even sponsored some by Alibaba in regards to like sponsoring the events because they're trying to just curate. You know, they're a little bit 
behind in regards to infrastructure uh, on how to like at least connect on the Amazon side. That's the perspective I'm always coming from. Like mm-hmm. how do these Amazon sellers or these brands interact with, you know, these manufacturers and yep. communicate and everything go, go smoothly. There's obviously different countries have their different challenges, even including um, some of the tax incentives for, for working in, you know, for sourcing out of different countries or the tax tariffs and things like that. Yeah, uh, can make a huge difference in the bottom line. And, you know, whenever we get hired, some people don't think about this. Uh, they're just like, okay, I'm hiring them to be marketers and create content on my listings on Amazon or whatever the case might be. But no, at a high level, um, you know, depending on the arrangement, we are thinking about how you're kidding your products, your packaging, the size of your boxes. Is it eco-friendly? Right. You know, where is it coming from? Um, all those come down, especially like on a marketplace like Amazon, where they do take a large percentage for bringing you that customer cost of goods sold is everything. I mean, right. it's absolutely everything. And we've had some products that were have been doable for years that when shipping containers went 4X, 5X, all of a sudden we're like, wow, these products can't work for us. Like at this rate, you know, you just can't raise the price that much. Um, it's just literally at the very top of the priority list when it comes mm-hmm. to, you know, being successful in e-commerce, it's that profitability. Um, shout out again. I got a couple of questions for you, but shout out again to our sponsor, fullscale.io. Finding expert software developers doesn't have to be difficult, especially when you visit FullScale.io, where you can build a software team quickly and affordably. Use the FullScale platform to find your technical needs and then see what available developers, testers, and leaders are ready to join your team. Visit FullScale.io to learn more. So thankful for our partners that make this show uh, possible, free, um, and able to promote it and, and blast it out and give as much value as we can. So thank you again, FullScale.io. Um, okay, let's talk about evaluating a supply chain. Okay, so... <clears throat> Let's say someone has been sourcing from a factory in China for two years. You know, this is their go to, um, you know, they're comfortable there, but they're like, well, maybe prices do need to be negotiated. Maybe like I can do better in Mexico than I can in China. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you begin? Where do you even begin if, if you're not someone starting from scratch, but you're someone that already exists? How do you like what should you think about? Where do you begin to evaluate your supply chain? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, the way, you know, we like to think of it is looking at the product first, like what type of product are you actually making, right? There's going to be certain limitations on the product that you have, where it can be sourced, where it can be manufactured and where the lead times and price are going to make sense. So for example, electronics, like really challenging to move those types of products out of China. They're just the best at it in the world without question. They're going to have uh, the cheapest you know, bang for your buck there as far as quality with the price that it yep. costs to make those goods. However, like when you get into more of like metals and cut and sew type of product or furniture, like you can start thinking about moving those products outside of China to places like India, Vietnam, mm-hmm. and Mexico, right? Um, the other part to think of it is like, where where are the natural resources or raw materials coming from as well? So, um China and India have the luxury that they have so much land and so many people that they have, you know, a lot of mills, a lot of raw material factories that can get their access to their products uh, much faster than places like Mexico, Mexico um, and Vietnam, for example, like they import still a ton of their products. So like glass, like that's getting imported from China. So you have a glass product, you're still going to probably be sourcing it unless you do it in the United States, but like unless you, or you can absorb those costs, like you're probably still going to be sourcing it from, you know, uh, India or China as a result of that. So the first thing you should really think about is, is my product actually, 
you know, where are the raw materials? Like where can I get the access to raw materials from? And is my product manufacturable in a place outside of where you're currently doing manufacturing? One thing I saw, um, like, I feel like is a trend maybe the last five years or so was like, you know, sourced here assembled in the u.s or like you know they yeah. started it's a marketing play but also just like okay we're not going to get it completely made there let's get the raw materials from that country and then like right. you know assemble it here so that we can control kind of some of those design elements or cer- yeah. certain ways of protecting your product right um I-, I personally grew up in um in africa till i was 16 so oh, wow. uh I-, I lived in cameroon botswana and then my teenage years in congo um and congo is like you know the country of Congo is half the United States. Uh, if you put it on a map and it's actual yeah, yeah. size, it's absolutely Huge. massive. And it's, um, you know, China is there in a big, big way uh, because it has all of the parts you need for cell phones and electronics and you right. know, diamonds and everything else. Um, but it made a ton of sense. I actually had this idea that I had to, to nix um, because I was looking you know, it was one of those cultural appropriation things if I did it wrong. And I was, you know, growing up in Africa, I wanted to create this like new line of men's clothing that was more a Western fit, but with like African fabric and then using this like um, this um, refugee uh, startup in Tampa that like my sister had helped curate, which was um, seamstresses. Okay. So it was like, and I was going to source this fabric from Africa. I was going to have it like assembled here with a little bit of a Western flair. Our story would tie in because we came from Africa. And so, you know, it's a hybrid idea. In my mind, it made sense. <laughs> and um, I actually went down to like sourcing the raw goods. And I learned that almost all of the fabric in Africa comes from like Sweden or some country in Europe. Uh, like, so like the fabric you know, didn't even exist in Africa. And it just like, it killed my story, you know, behind the product. And I'm just like, this doesn't even go. But that was kind of like a a funny tell of the same thing of like knowing where you're, where the product, the raw materials come from. Right. Um, Okay. So step one, tip one, where's this, where's it coming from? Um, You know, what's another, another thing that they can kind of focus on when it comes to like evaluating the supply chain they already have? Yeah. I think the next becomes like, you know, actually doing the diligence on the factory partner. So you've identified like, yes, my region can, you know, absorb the product or the region I want to go to can absorb the product. The next thing is to actually verify, validate the factory is who they say they are. I mean, I'm sure you've heard horror stories. Mm. I've experienced it myself where, you know, you go over to China or somewhere um, and you go into the factory and they're like, they say there are all these things, you know, I've, I've been to a couple of factories that are like, you know, world renowned in Vietnam. And I've been to some factories in Vietnam that like nowhere near what they say they are on paper. Same thing with China. And like an example I have is, you know, we went to a factory in China where they, you know, they said they were Disney certified. They said they're Walmart certified. They sent us all these samples. We go there and there's nobody in the factory. The machines are, you know, dusty and full of like spider webs and stuff. And they look, and the toys look like they're from the 1980s. And it's like, okay, so where do you guys actually produce the goods? And they're like, well, th- this is our office. It's like, I don't know, seems a little off. So like validating that the actual uh, factory is, you know, has the machines that you need to manufacture the product, that they have people working at the product. So going and validating that, there's things that we do, like looking at, you know, legal records to make sure that the, the factories aren't doing anything behind, you know, that's illegal, like stealing money. Mm-hmm false child labor or whatever stuff like you got to make sure that you know that i mean the way i the way i see your relationship with your factory is it's like 
outside of the outside of the, the like as a, as a product company outside of the, the relationship you have with your customers because they're the ones who absorb your product use your product give you feedback on your product help you develop the next iteration of your product or add new products or catalogs or SKUs to, to enhance the brand the next best relationship you really need to understand is your factory relationship um, they're the ones who are kind of like your architect and your and your and your uh, builder of your product, right? Like I'm not building it as a product owner. My factory is building it. So if you keep that relationship really tight, um, and treat them with respect and treat them as humans, um, it'll go a long way. And I think a lot of the culture that I've seen, uh, of like this Alibaba world is that like, it's all about bottom line. It's all about like mm. return. Um, and I think as you start to evaluate going outside of China where that infrastructure doesn't exist, like there isn't really a culture differences too. much different. I mean, you, you, you can't bulldog your way like you can on Alibaba and there's like another factory that's ready to go lining up, chomping at the bit for your business. Like everyone's trying to get out of China right now. So you can't just bulldog your way into it. Like you actually need to develop the relationships. So when you're, so when you're doing that vetting process, it's not just. The factory's feeling you out too. Like it's not a one-way street. Like they want to make sure that you're a legit business. You're going to treat them well. That you're going to pay on time, and that you're going to promote their factory too. Like it's it's a relationship at the end of the day. So when you're doing the vetting, it's it's both ways. And then also like just know what you're going up against. Um, the response time is nowhere near what it is in China. The infrastructure is nowhere near what it is in China. Pretty much anywhere outside of China. You're going to places like Mexico, like a lot of it's still contract manufacturing. Like they have a lot of goods that they've already created before and their appetite to create a brand new product is going to be a lot lower if you're just starting out. If you have a big brand and you have millions of dollars that you can spend on PLs, like they're much more willing to talk to you. And uh, I mean, this is a great example. One of my one of my uh, uh, design managers went down to Mexico a couple of weeks ago and she's walking in the door with. Under Armour and Nike in the same factory. It's like, unless you're going to have those types of PO sizes, like good luck. Right. So I think it really, really comes down to like, when I say the vetting process, it's the whole idea of like finding out where, where your factory is going to be made and then being, being realistic about the expectations mm. of communication, being realistic about the expectations of if their factory is going to be willing to work with you based on the size of what you're doing. Cause most of these places are getting hit up by big brands um, the competitive nature has gotten huge. And also, um, you know, tr people who, who try and bulldog their way or try to, you know, say like, I'm the best and, you know, have the ego and all that stuff. Like they don't want to work with you. They want to work with yeah. people who are, who are, you know, reasonable, sound business people who are going to bring a bunch of business to them. And it's not just about the bottom. It's not just about the bottom line for them. Cause I think everyone's knocking at their door right now. So, um, you know, I think all those things that I'm talking about in the, in the vetting process are really the next step after you've identified what regions can actually make your product. No, that was super good, Zach. Very helpful. And I, and I just really agree. As someone that grew up abroad, um, the African culture specifically is like just all about respect and, and tribe and family. And like those those values matter. It's not just bottom line. You know, like um, when you do business with someone, you are feeding their family. That's almost how they think. It's how we should all think, really. Um, but like, you know, that's, that's top of mind. And I would say like, um, I think this is the same in Latin America. Like I, I, have toured some factories in Costa Rica that were just world-class, like beautiful, mm -hmm. um, factories. And, um, you know, they just treat us like Kings. Like when we were there visiting, uh, from the tour to the hospitality to like, you know, they care about relationship. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of these cultures are just a lot different than the West in regards to like how much they value family and relationship. And while it might be um, a little bit harder to get in, what I can say is that once you're in, you are right. family, like, you know, as long as you honor that. And so um, that's just something that you have to like, you know, going and being in person and, um, you know, they love to host, they love to like, you know, take care of people. So if you are open to that relationship, you're going to do so much better than if you're just firing off feisty emails, trying to negotiate price or something like that, you know? Right. Um, so very, very great advice. And I think depending on what country you're going to and, you know, all those things, like I'm, I'm sure it's different in Vietnam than it is in Mexico city than it is like in Costa Rica than it is, you know, anywhere else. And I think that's one of the things that excites me about Latin America is that, a lot of them are very hungry to grow, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so because of that for e-commerce where a lot of us are smaller, let's say than a Nike or an Adidas, um, you know, coming in there while you might have expectations of it being slower and having to grow with them and learn, you're going to get more willingness to work with you as a smaller brand that might not be bringing, you know, $100,000 PO, um, but for them, it's, it's exciting. Right. Um, right. I 100% agree. Okay. I, I like, you know, I'm still learning a lot of this because I didn't actually start on the product side in regards to like, I built a brand and then I just decided to do an agency, which is like a lot of like my competition kind of went that route, very successful Amazon sellers or brand builders. And then they're like, okay, we're going to do this for other people. And um, my path was, has been on the services side from the beginning, um, you know, took care of some personal challenges in my life and family life and things like that. And so it was pushing and instead of investing in product I was investing in this in this business and in team and things like that and now I'm on the other side where I'm building brands and really learning how to source at a at a higher level it used to be like hey here's partner x here's partner x here's partner x now I'm I'm actually doing this for my own brands my own company so um, just a different perspective on how Amazon sellers like you know my perspective with sourcing um Let's talk like, okay, so you've evaluated your manufacturer, you've evaluated like what country you're getting it from, or maybe your options, like what options are there out there for me, like in regards to raw materials, because what I know is like, uh, even I talked about China and Africa, China and Latin America and Mexico, you know, they're sending a lot of their raw goods to Mexico um, for fulfillment centers, they're buying warehouses, they're buying storage facilities, they're buying them all up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're taking product from China, getting it a lot closer to us here in the West. So as we pivot to Latin America, we're actually still buying from China, um, you know, and they're figuring that out as well to get, get shipping containers. So it's moving, it's moving fast, in my opinion, uh, in the way that things are going. So someone's evaluating, okay, so uh, I'm sourcing from the right country. And, and mind you, in this example, like they might already have a supplier, right? Mm-hmm. And they're just saying, where else can I go? Or where can I be better? Or how can I right. pivot? And then they're like, okay, I want to visit the factory because what people need to keep in mind is that, and I'm not saying this for everyone, but in some of these countries, like they're going to say yes to whatever you want and they're going to figure out how to get it to you, whether they're ready or not. They're like some of them are hungry. Some of them are, you know, desperate for, for business and, and desperate for income. And, you know, you just don't know really who you're dealing with. Um, I know if my family was hungry, I'd be like, yeah, I can make these for you. And then I'll just figure <laughs> it out, you know, like so in some of these cases you are. That's why the factory is important. You got to know who's on the other side. Then, um. Okay, we're evaluating the factory itself, its quality. Can it actually do what they say they're going to do? Mm-hmm. Um, what comes after that? Yeah, then it comes down to the negotiation table, right? Then okay. you got to figure out um, 
what the price per unit is and how it scales, you know, if you're starting to buy a larger volume and what's the capacity that they can have at their factory for you. So you kind of get into like the more dollars and cents talk. Um, but then once you get past that, you know, it's kind of your, your typical, you know, go through the sampling process, make sure that everything's good to go. And then, um, you know, start starting getting into, you know, a smaller production run and then a larger production run and kind of testing out to make sure that, you know, you check all your boxes before you're like, okay, I have a thing that's working in China and I want to move it completely over to a different country or take some of that production over to another country. Like you got to, in my opinion, the best way to do it is kind of slow roll it to make sure that you're comfortable with all the operations that are going to happen in there. Um, but when you're doing the price, like that's when you start evaluating, you know, tariffs and duties and all those types of things coming in. Like if you're going from Mexico, obviously there's different trade agreements that are in there. You go from places like India, like there's not as crazy, um, tariffs like there are from china um so yeah it really just depends on where your end consumer is and and kind of doing that evaluation of you know does it make sense from a dollar perspective also from a lead time perspective right like like i said with vietnam as an example you're most likely going to have to absorb a larger or a longer lead time a because it's farther away from (laughs) from the u.s if your products are in the u.s you're selling in the u.s um it's further away from you know physically a boat it takes longer to get there but also the raw materials have to come from somewhere like like India or China. And so they have to absorb that lead time, get the raw materials into their warehouse or Korea, right? So um, that's the whole evaluation process. It's like, is this a backup factory? Is this my primary factory? Is this a good option if I get into a pinch? Are they going to have certain volume requirements that, you know, makes it harder for me to, you know, just put everything in there if I don't trust them yet. So it's kind of like you're playing this game and this numbers game of like, what makes sense from a dollar's perspective, from a lead time perspective, from an inventory management perspective, and then ultimately like the cost of it getting into your warehouse, you know, logistics, customs, duties, tariffs, all that, all that stuff comes into play at the end. Now, once you understand like where you're going to, you know, where you're going to develop the product, if the factory partner is good for you, then you can start really getting into that next level of, you know, determining price, lead time, quality, all that good stuff. I love it. It sounds like it sounds like I need experts to work with. If you ask me, um, you know, just the tax tariffs and and uh, you know picking a freight forwarder and picking like right. you know those those kinds of things can be just like super daunting, um, you know. And and you go and you pick one product and you get another product and the sample process and you know uh, you know a lot of a lot of the work people I work with too are like anxious about switching because they're you know they're like. I don't want other people to get my product and you know you just have a lot of factors going on that honestly unless you've been doing it probably as long as you have it's it's like extremely overwhelming um like uh i was gonna say um let's talk like let's let's wrap up the last five minutes or so talking about how what it looks like to engage with gemba um in regards to like i know you guys do design and you've got you know you can help them get all of their like drawings together and you can help them source and pick out where to go from and Mm -hmm. all of those things but like, let's say I am a, um, a brand, I've been doing it myself and I'm ready to like, okay, this is something that I want to bring on a partner to help me with this, with like the rest of my products I'm developing. Um, you know, what does that look like for someone getting started? Sure. Um, you know, the, the first thing that we like to understand when we work with someone is, you know, what, what's the end game here? Like, you know, most people we want to talk to if they're small, mid-sized businesses, like you're talking with someone on the C-suite, right? And their exit always has to be top of mind, right? So what are you trying to do to get to that exit that you want to have in five years? Is it, you know, I'm trying to exit very soon, so I'm trying to get my cost down, or is it I'm trying to build my brand and get the largest number possible? And then there's different conversations you can have based on that, right? 
So if you're just going after the cost thing, it's like, okay, I need to reevaluate my products or my supply chain to see if I can get things sourced cheaper as soon as possible. Whereas if you're going down the building brand and building equity and all that, like, let's talk about how we can get products launched that fit within your product category and your brand um, in a very quick manner. Right. So that's kind of the two first way to, you know, think about engaging with us is like, yeah, we okay. can, I love that. We can resource your product every day, like any day of the week. Right. Like that's not a problem. Um, the problem is like, what's your end game, right? Like, are you trying to you know, like get out of China for strategic reasons? Do you have a board or, or, a, you know, a group of people that you have to report to that are putting pressure on you to do this? You need to get it done fast. Like is your exit tomorrow or is your exit in like five to 10 years? Like that'll kind of determine the, the, the game and flight plan uh, for us to engage with you. Um, and then once you do, like we start to understand what your, what products you're working on. And then we start swarming your, your, your product with the team of experts and, and designers and engineers, depending on what kind of engagement you have with us. But if you're going on the product, uh, product development route, or we're trying to get, you know, products that's either net new or some slight tweaks to an existing product. We'll most likely put a, at least an industrial designer and, and mechanical engineer on the team that have worked at, you know, either on products or at places where those products have been made before. Like I give that example of Under Armour for a shoe. Like we actually have an Under Armour shoe designer on our, on our mm-hmm. network, in our network. Um, and then you manage everything through our platform. So we have a platform that has, you know, all those different players kind of coordinated through a flight plan of like, here's your development plan based on the product you have. Here are the players within that, in that flight plan. And they're you know, held accountable for milestones that they need to give you actual collateral and deliverables for. Um, once you go over to the to the sourcing side, same thing. We start the process pretty early on, either you know if you're doing development first or you're not doing development first with us. Um, in the sales process, we kind of take and understand what kind of product or the the prospecting process. We understand the product. We'll start to go to each region and like say, okay, like can can fact do we have factories within this in this region that are willing to take on this project? And you know we give you a thumbs up, and then we start putting that same team together on the overseas side. Um, to match you up with the factory and kind of help with the communication and make sure that everything's kind of moving, moving through that plan of like vetting, then, you know, doing, getting samples and then ultimately into production. And then finally, once you go through the production side, you know, we have logistics and, you know, freight brokers and all that stuff that we work with and partner with that uh, base, you know, wherever you're doing the, the actual production, we'll match you up with and kind of make sure it gets from their warehouse to yours. And from there, you know, it's up to you to go sell the product and come back and reorder when you can. <laughs> hire, hire my knowledge. So we'll help you sell it. Right. Exactly. So, there you go. Um, you know, that's what we do. And that's why we partner up with people that, you know, get the product to the warehouse. And then from there, that's like, that's where our job begins. And that's why they're so important, you know, as an Amazon seller, if the product's quality, we're not going to do that. Well, you know, if the supply chain is broken, we're not going to do that. Well, you don't know how many times I've, had two successful launches, but we've sold out a product and can't get more. And, um, you know, that's, it's just that's as like common the one thing as, you can't do. You can't run out of inventory. If your product's selling, like always have a plan, a plan B for factories. Like it's going to happen, especially if your product's, you know, a hot one, you gotta, gotta make sure you yeah. build demand. And that's definitely where I was bringing a lot of my questions today. At least that angle for anyone listening was like, you know, I've got a product, I've got China. I am someone that is, you know, I never want a single point of failure, you know, so as soon as I can, I am like looking to be like, okay, does that mean like I want to get shorts and hats made here? 
you know, even though I can't give them everything, but I like, you know, keeps them on a drip and keeps them happy because I'm sourcing this and I've got one here. So I'm, I'm building this relationship because a relationship takes time to build. You know, it's not just like, it's not just a PO that they're filling that makes right. the relationship. It's like successful POs over two years and you see consistency that this brand or this agency isn't going anywhere. And they're, then they're like, okay, this is worth our investment. And next time you need that thing rushed, they're, they're there to help because, you know, you've been solid for two years paying bills. So, you know, how do you get those relationships started? How do I pivot? How do I think about, you know, second and third tier options for sourcing different items? Um, you know, I, I, one thing I always thought about was like, um, one of the first times I really realized like sourcing was it like, I don't know, was, was that important? It was like, I was at like a Nordstrom rack or like a TJ Maxx or something like that. And, um, I'm not really a brand guy, but I like, you know, I, I, I care about fashion. It's less about, it's less about the brand and more of the fit and like, you know, how it makes me feel and things like that than the brand name. But Nike has always been like, you know, one of those top tier brands that you think about. And I just remember like, they definitely have different um, quality of manufacturing in their shirts and apparel. Right. And so like, you know, maybe it's like the, like, for example, Nike combat, always just amazing, like mm -hmm. gear, Nike combat gear. But there's like shirts that I would find just for like going to the gym or whatever that would be like, this is kind of boxy. And this this medium fits like this and this medium fits like this and this medium fits like this. Mm -hmm. Somewhere in their supply chain, um, they had some mistakes or they like, you know, switch factories or doing something where the cuts were a little different or the materials were a little different. And there's a lack of branding or a loss of a loss of the brand, in my opinion, and that I had bought some items that weren't as quality as the others, you know, and so. Um, just what an important thing. I'm not even someone that's like, this is what I do every day, but I was something that I could noticeably, you know, yeah. feel. And as you're building brands like that consistency, especially when no one knows you're not Nike and you can't overcome that. And you're like on your second run of products, like yeah. keeping stuff consistent and things like that being like super, super important. Yeah. And I think that's like to bring it home for, you know, maybe some of the listeners here of like, this is, this is probably more real for, for you. Um, if you're getting different you know, even on one production run, if you started to get different quality, you may want to have someone go visit your factory to make sure that they're the only one producing that. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've seen instances where people are going through either an agent or a broker. They think they're talking directly to the factory. We've evaluated their supply chain and it finds out that that person is just a, a salesperson that has a network of factories that they work with. And they'll be sourcing the product from like four or five different factories and people get people like they'll see an inspection checklist that says like, yeah, you passed from that factory, but then you're getting three other factories and they're finding out via the reviews on Amazon or via reviews on Google or via reviews on their website of like, you're having quality control issues. And like the only way you're really going to get on top of that is like you said, having a good relationship with your factory, you know, making sure that you're building that trust, but also being diligent about it. Like you have to have someone going to do QC, having someone like understanding that that forensic side of, you know, where are you actually getting your factory or your raw materials from and where are you actually having your products produced? Is the factory, you know, real and all that stuff. So that, that stuff really, it does exist. And unfortunately we, that's where a lot of our customers come from is they have those bad experiences and they don't want to, mm. they want to, they want to work with people who are trustworthy and they want to work with factories who are trustworthy. And that's part of what we do is to make sure that you know, the factories we work with aren't doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's crazy to develop an amazing product. Let's say we have an amazing, you develop the product, you have an amazing launch, you hire a company like ours, we're launching it, we're successful, we're crushing it. Um, and then you get a second, you know, a second round in, maybe go straight to Amazon. 
Um, you start getting reviews that you didn't get the first round um, that absolutely just crush your product on Amazon, you know, and you've now invested, you had an amazing product, you hired, you know, multiple firms to get it done, whatever the case might be. And then to lose because, you know, you just, you just got too confident in the quality and stopped checking it or you didn't get the second, this round of samples from this one, right. um, you know, to cut, to cut costs basically. And, um, you know, you've lost everything you've built over the last 12 months or whatever. Um, yeah. And you, you just see some of these nightmares, you know, if you've been doing this 10 years, you start to just see some of this kind of stuff that's like really sad in some ways, um, but really just came down to like not knowing and really understanding, uh, you know, every aspect of your business is why I built and launched a fulfillment center in 2020 was because not in the same way, but as a vertically integrated, like brand building machine, you know, mm -hmm. that is Marknology. Um, there were so many things that could go wrong in, in the fulfillment center, just from like receiving right. the goods, prepping them, packing them, the quality of packaging. Like it was something that I just like, couldn't take that risk on for any brands that I'm going to invest my own dollars and build and spend right. several years building. It was something I wanted to right. control. So, um, I love, I love it. And I think it's provided a ton of value. Um, talk to me about where people can find, you know, find you, find your team, get more information on Gimbal, um, you know, yeah. stay connected with what you guys are doing. Yeah, the, the easiest way is to go to our, our website, www.gemba.com. That's G-E-M-B-A-H.com. Um, you know, we feel there's a ton of content on there about, you know, who we are. There's a ton of case studies on there to, you know, help you get comfortable with what we do. Um, if you want to hit up me specifically, um, I think the best way would probably be on LinkedIn. You know, feel free to give me a shout, send me a message, add me, whatever. Um and uh, yeah, that's that's probably the, the best two ways to, to get in touch. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. Um, Startup Puzzle listeners, thank you for your time and attention. And, and shout out again to our sponsor for today's episode. Um, do you need to hire software engineers, testers, or leaders? Let FullScale help. They have the people and the platform to help you build and manage a team of experts. When you visit FullScale.io, all you need to do is answer a few questions. Let the platform match you up with a fully vetted, highly experienced team of software engineers, testers, and leaders. At FullScale, they specialize in building long-term teams that work only for you. Learn more when you visit FullScale.io. Um, Zach, thank you so much for your time. Uh, enjoy your trip there uh, with family. And, um, you know, really appreciate you giving to our community today. Awesome, man. Happy to, happy to be here. And uh, thanks for having me again. Yeah, we'll see you next time, Hustlers. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.